Well, it is a joy and a privilege to be here for you today. Opportunity to open God's Word and find a message from the Lord, a helpful message from the Lord that'll be beneficial for who we are in Christ, how we are living before Him, and prepare us to be able to serve others in a more Christ-like fashion. So what we're going to be attending to this morning is we examine God's Word, but before we open the Word of God together, I am cognizant of our brothers who are at ETS, and I want to have a time of prayer for them. So would you join me specifically as we go to the Lord and ask His blessing upon each one who's going to be presenting. I don't know who all and how many all are going to be there, what they're going to be doing in their papers, but I know this, that every one of them could use the Lord's blessing on that ministry. So join me, please, as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the men from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary that's going to be presenting papers at ETS. Father, thank you for their research, for their writing. Father, thank you for the presentation that will be given this week. Father, I pray that you will drive the truth of that paper in the heart of each one of these presenters. And that, Father, it'll be life-changing in the hearts and the lives and the ministries of each one of the persons who hear the presentations as they're offered. Father, I pray for my brothers. Lord, give them clarity of thought. Father, I pray that uh, it will be a ministry to their own heart as they present that which they've researched and written. Father, I pray for our time now. I pray for each one seated before me. Father, I pray on his or her behalf, that, Father, you could give them the grace of a special hearing. That, Father, you would unlock insight into their own heart, into their own life, into their own ministry as they now know it. Father, help them to examine themselves thoroughly well. Father, may they find your grace as it's demonstrated in your word, offered to your men, and how they were restored and recommitted to your service. Father, may that be true of every one of us. And Father, as Dr. Allen was praying, Lord, I pray that this can be a time of tending and shepherding of your precious flock. And Father, may you do that work in the heart of each one of us that only you can do and challenge us in the way that we know is most fitting for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Mister, I can fix it, but I can't unwreck it. 
Those words were spoken to my brother years ago about a new car that he had that was wrecked through no fault of his own. But being a rather finicky man and having a brand new car that he had not had long, taking that thing to the auto body shop and taking it back time after time after time, the service manager just had to come out and give him the bottom line and let him know the reality of that situation. He could fix it, but he could not unwreck it. And therefore, he was stuck with that wreck until he sold it. I was thinking about that concept and that principle in the life of those of us who are followers of Christ. And I want you to know that that bottom line that's true in maybe the auto body world is not true of us in Christ Jesus. I'm not advocating, I'm not incentivizing any one of us to make, as Alistair Begg would say, a hash of it in our Christian lives. I'm not trying to do that, but we all all too well know of our own failures. Now, maybe they are not of a moral nature. I trust that they were not scandalous of public repute, but that could be the case. And especially if that has been the case in your life, I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, He is not trying just to fix that mess. He is able, but he is not even trying to unwreck that mess. He is there to sanctify that mess and equip us to make us more versatile servants because of that mess. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And Jesus Christ will do that in our lives. I don't care what scandal, what shame, what impropriety has been yours. Christ is not willing to leave you there. He wants to work you through that. He wants it to be redemptive. He wants to set you up so that you can be an example to those in the body of Christ and demonstrate His grace and His mercy for the same need when it comes to roost in their life. We understand, I trust we do, that the Apostle Paul, he realized that the life that he lived before he came to the saving knowledge of Christ was quite scandalous. It was of great reputation in a negative way, but the Apostle Paul wrote this about himself. It is a trustworthy statement, full uh, deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy. Notice this, in order that in me as the foremost, as the king of all the sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. The Apostle Paul was not making light of the mess that he had made. As scandalous as it was, as hurtful as it was, he realized that Christ was there to redeem that mess. He was there. He was able 
to use that profitably in the lives of very many people. Matter of fact, the very next verse, listen to this. This is a doxology and how appropriate this was. It tells us the heart of the Apostle Paul upon that scandal of the mess of his life before Christ. Verse 17 reads, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The mess that he left behind, that he knew that God was not only able but willing to use that to demonstrate his perfect Patience was a doxology in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Well, you say, that's great, but, uh, you know, I'm in Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul, there's nothing doxological about this, but he instructed as he was writing to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to himself, lest you too be tempted. When sin shows up in the life of a believer, we must be instant to make sure that there is restoration. They are to be one. They are not to be left behind. They are not to be hung out to dry. They are not from that day forward to become second-class citizens. No, they need to be restored. They need to be confronted so that they can be restored. And then they're to be loved as a brother in Christ. Restoration is needed, quite frankly, in the lives of each one of us. And there's not one of us that realizes the great need that we're going to have in our life moving forward. And I trust that as there is that need, you will find the ministry of the Good Shepherd in his gracious ministry to us, to tend us, to shepherd us, to do whatever it takes to get us back on the right track. That's what we're going to see from our text today. That as bad as it was, that uh, his beloved men, those who he, he would establish as the pillars of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the very pillars, every one of them, Abandon him. Every one of them had fallen away. And Peter, outdoing the others, denied Christ three times. And yet he would redeem every one of those men. Yes, their falling away was foretold. And it was inevitable. Because every one of those men, they distanced themselves. They did not understand who they were and how they were. Every one of them was boasting of a love that was not true, of a faithfulness that really was not yet theirs. And when the work of the enemy of their souls demanded permission to sift them as wheat... Jesus Christ, as he told Peter about that, said, but Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned, restore your brothers. And that's the ministry that Jesus Christ 
has to enact before he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. And boy, what a ministry this was. These men were absolutely devastated. That's a weak term. I don't know how else to describe it. Matter of fact, in in John chapter 21, verse 3, Peter tells several other of his fellow disciples, he said, I'm going fishing. And that wasn't a little downtime, a little R&R. That's because he couldn't stand it anymore. He had seen Jesus Christ at this point. He's about to see him again for the third time. He knew that everything that he said, he had accomplished it. He had power over death. He was raised victoriously. Great honor, great power. And yet he had abandoned him. And he had denied him. It was more than he could take. We've all been there. Not maybe about Jesus Christ, I trust to that degree. But we know what it's like to fail in such a way that we are devastated. We can't believe what we did. And we can't even afford to look at ourselves in the mirror. Matter of fact, there's a bit of verse called the man in the mirror that speaks exactly to that issue. It goes like this. When you get what you want in your struggle for self and the world makes you keen for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it's not your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The person whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. You can be a Jack Horner and chisel a plum and think you're a wonderful guy, but the man in the mirror thinks you're only a bum because you can't look him straight in the eye. He's the one to please, never mind all the rest, for he'll be with you clear to the end. You pass your most difficult, dangerous test if the guy in the glass is your friend. You can fool everyone on the pathway of years, getting pats on the back as you pass. But your reward will only be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. And every one of these disciples, every one of them had cheated the man in the glass. And if that was not bad enough, they had abandoned the Lord and they were absolutely devastated. But I want you to know that God was going to work this personal devastation to a great deal of good. It exposed in the heart of each one of these men their own personal vulnerability. And it was going to show to them as exhibit A of the grace of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. As he as a good shepherd would bring them back and position them to tend his sheep. Now, I I want you to understand that. What was happening right here in John 21, where we're going to camp briefly this morning, they were the recipients of the ministry that Jesus Christ was now going to send them out for. 
They were going to learn what it's like to receive a shepherding ministry when they so desperately needed it. Why? So they could go out and apply the same kind of shepherding to those who needed it just as they did. Oh, the grace of God is so very great. And we're going to see that in great abundance here. Now, I've got to say something at this point. I don't want anybody to misunderstand where I'm going with this. I don't want anybody to conjure up what I'm not saying and ascribe my interpretation to this. Just a bit of an aside here just for a moment. I am not talking about men in a position, the office of an elder or a deacon who conduct their life in such a way where they are no longer above reproach. Do you hear me? I am not talking about that office. There are requirements for those offices and they can be violated. And listen to me, I believe that that man is no longer able to hold that office. But though he cannot resume that office, he can go forward in Christ, in great productivity, in great service, continuing on in Christ, fully forgiven of the scandal that he has brought to the reproach that he has brought upon the name of Christ. Hear me well. That too is what we must understand. And so we're going to see this great ministry that's happening in John chapter 21. So if you've not yet done that, open your Bible to John 21. And we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 22 as quickly as we can. Boy, believe me, uh, there are are traps everywhere to where we can go not far afield, but go deep into the Word of God and get all kinds of insights. And I fear that I might fall into one of those traps, but I've just got to stay right here hitting the high points because I can't afford to get weighed down. I just want you to know this. At the very end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21, this is an epilogue. It is a very crucial postscript. A P.S. to this gospel. There is some unfinished business. Now, the business that has happened here in John's gospel is so glorious that John is presenting Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, God in human flesh. And he's showing miracle after miracle after miracle. So you can know that he's the promised one. He himself is God. And so that you can believe in him. And and John just hints at this at the very end of John chapter 21. He says this, verse 25, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. But I want you to know that John does detail what had just preceded that statement. And this restoration and recommitting of himself and these other disciples. Of all the things that we'll never know about, because John beheld them. He knew all about them, but he was not led to write about them. He was led to write this epilogue and this crucial postscript. And my friends, it is that significant for us to understand what is happening here. These men are devastated. 
They are going fishing. There is no road back. They have blown it. Uh, the opportunity of a lifetime. And they've negated it fully. Boy, they had so much to learn about their Lord. Three years had not prepared them to anticipate was about to, what was about to take place in John 21. So let's understand this. What are we looking at in this passage? We're going to see in this text before us three requirements to fulfill your calling to serve Christ. That was the need of these men. They were not in a position to even begin from this point forward to fulfill their calling. They were down and out. It was over. That's it. They were through. They're done. There is no future for them. So they thought. And Jesus Christ, as he deals with this man, with these men, he's going to hammer out these requirements. Man, what went wrong? What went sideways is going to get fixed. It's going to be sanctified. And they are going to be abundantly equipped because of this mess. They are going to be fit to serve him supremely well in the days to come. But for them to be able to meet these requirements is going to require what they do not possess at all. And that is to be restored, to be recommitted to a call that was given. And so that's the purpose of Christ. He's going to restore them. He's going to recommission them so that they can fulfill their calling. So his purpose and his message flow together for this great outcome that we're going to see in the lives of these men. Well, let's get with it. Three requirements to fulfill your calling in Christ. What are these three commitments? What is it that is our takeaway? What is it that we need to know, not just for the day, but for your last day as you continue to serve Christ? Well, number one, to fulfill your calling to serve Christ requires. Now, again, there's the operative term. These are requirements. These are absolutely necessary. If you're going to fulfill your calling, it is abundantly required of you that you possess an unrivaled love for the Lord. Requirement number one, that you possess an unrivaled love for the Lord. Now, we're just going to quickly, as quickly as we can, look at a couple of things here. First of all, we start right there with the concept of love. Man, this is where they failed. Every one of these men loved the Lord, but I want you to know their failure came because they did not love him fully. There was fear. There were other things that usurped that, that true love that they had for Christ. There was a failure in the issue of their love for Christ. Now, before we even examine the text, take this as a takeaway. When we get our love for God right, 
We get that vertical reality just as it should be. Every horizontal thing will take care of itself. I don't care what temptation, what hardship, what difficulty. It will all be resolved profitably, pleasingly to the Lord. The difficulty won't go away, but how we respond to it will be pleasing to the Lord because our love is right and all these other horizontal Significant, difficult, transitory problems of life will be very handily resolved because of our love for the Lord. When our love for the Lord is right, when we have this unrivaled love for Him. Jesus Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And of course, Jesus was quoting from the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the great and the foremost commandment. Friends, this is not being abrogated. It never has been. It never will be. This does not fade away. It, it does not subdue itself in the backdrop. This is the driving reality that must be true of every one of us. As I look out on... These faces before me, I'm telling every one of us and reminding myself as well, our love, an unrivaled love for God is absolutely crucial for us to fulfill our calling to serve Christ. And that is the very point of their failure. They could not conceive that. Matter of fact, Peter responded to the Lord when he told them about Satan's permission. He said, Lord, where are you going that I cannot follow you? I'm ready to follow you right now. I will lay down my life for you. And later that evening, Jesus said, Peter, you will all fall away. Lord, even though all fall away, I will never fall away from you. Peter was just like the rest. He loved the Lord, but there was a distance in the love that he was proclaiming he had as opposed to the love that he actually had. And when the time he most needed it, he realized that his love was not an unrivaled one. And that's what Jesus Christ is driving at. Look at this. Look at verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, isn't that so much like the Lord? Here these men are, now they're going to the next level of their abandonment. They're off fishing. That's a dedicated resolve. And Jesus Christ is there on the shore preparing breakfast for them. All night out there fishing, they caught nothing. He's first going to meet their physical need before he moves to their abundant spiritual need. Oh, what a kind, sensitive Good shepherd is Jesus Christ. And so it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, notice this, to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, he's using his old name because he's acting as he had always acted impetuous, doing whatever he wished. That's what got him into this trouble. His love for the Lord that was not as strong as his old nature. 
to do whatever he wished. Simon, son of John, notice this question. Do you love me more than these? Now, there's a great deal of hoopla as to the antecedent of the these. Is that the boats, the, the fish, the, the, the nets, all that kind of fishing tackle? Because that's what they were doing, fishing. Was it the other disciples? Do you love me more than these? Peter, that was your claim. Are you still holding to it? I think personally it's the fishing apparatus because that's what now he was committed to. And Jesus Christ is challenging him at his love. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, notice his response. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says to him, tend my lambs. Now what we have to understand here is Jesus is using a term for love that Peter never will use. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you down to here. A strong affection I have for you. Good for you, Peter. He's not speaking beyond what he can pull off. Peter had, had, had a habit of his mouth writing checks his life couldn't cash. And now he's dipping it down below the level of what Jesus Christ is challenging him with. He will not even ascribe to that level of love. But he tells him to tend his, sheep, tend his lambs. Look at verse 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There's no comparison here. It's just a straight across issue. Do you love me, Peter? Verse 16. Yes, Lord, you know that I have a strong affection for you. Notice what Jesus says, he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, it's not just the third time of his inquiry. It's on the third time, now Jesus drops down to Peter's level. And he uses the very word that Peter is ascribing for his love. Now he's calling that into question. This was a very painful examination, but it's, it's about that which is so very significant. Our love for Christ being an unrivaled love, that's what we need. A love that is greater than everything. Peter and the disciples had heard it many times. Many times in that three-year ministry, as Jesus would go to town to town and he, he would tell the people, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his children and his brothers and his sisters compared to me, he cannot be my disciple. And now that is what is being leveraged to Peter and these other men. It's a real challenge of an unrivaled love for him. But I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged with the takeaway. And every one of those things, Jesus Christ, did you catch it? Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. He was bringing them right back in on the level that he would confess his love to him. Jesus was never saying, but that's not good enough. That's not going to get it done. 
You've got to do better than that. You cannot serve me. I will not recommission you until you get it right. That's not what was going on. Oh, the great shepherd takes them with the true love that they can confess and he's willing to bless them on that. And then he tells them, exhibit your love for me. Don't just affirm it, but it has to be exhibited. And so he's examining their love and then he's calling them to exhibit that love. We realize that if we're gonna serve the Lord, if we're gonna love the Lord, then that can only mean what it means right here. Fine, I'll take you at your word. Now, serve me. Tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. You want to serve me, you have to serve them. Matthew 25, in those kingdom parables, Jesus Christ was saying about the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he was saying to those on the right, Blessed are you, enter now into the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you encouraged me. And they were saying, Lord, when did we ever see you like that? And Jesus says, whenever you did it, even to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is telling them, I'll accept your love that you are now saying. Now you exhibit that love. You serve me by serving my lambs and my sheep. And don't miss it, they were his. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 that whatever we are to do, we're to do heartily unto the Lord, not unto men, for it is the Lord whom you serve. There is a way that we would serve anybody who is other than the Lord. Then there's how we would serve the Lord himself. We are instructed by the word of God that our service unto the Lord is to be a Lord-worthy service. It has got to be motivated to serve the Lord. It's got to be commensurate as the one to whom the service is motivated. Now, I did not know that Dr. Allen was going to be here today. I thought he would be in his due place at ETS, but being negligent as he is, he's here hearing me. And so I already had, I'm trying to cap off this illustration and move quickly to the next point. If you've not noticed it, Dr. Allen is an impeccable dresser. He is a dapper man. And now of many good things that could truly be said about him, I'll just limit it to that one. Now, here's the deal. If I am going to offer him a gift, how foolish it would be of me if I were to give to this man an 80-inch Jed Clampett original necktie with a big sunflower brown and flaming yellow that he's to wear with his Botany 500 suits, Hart Schaffner and Marks, Nino Suterini, 
No, that would be ridiculous. It would not be commensurate with the one that I am offering it to. How ridiculous that would be. Listen, Jesus Christ is charging these men that they need to have an unrivaled love for him. They failed because their love for him was not as it should be. He was willing to sanction their future based upon the love that they had. But it was a failure of their love, first and foremost. And so that is for every one of us. We are only going to serve the Lord as well as much as we truly love him beyond anything or anyone else. If he's rivaled by anything or anyone, you take it to heart. Your love is not as it should be, and failure is going to find you because of that. We must have an unrivaled love for the Lord if we are going to fulfill our calling to serve Jesus Christ. Much more quickly, point two, not only an unfailing love for the Lord, but secondly, we must demonstrate a spiritual growth that glorifies the Lord. To demonstrate a spiritual growth that glorifies the Lord. Look at verse 18 in the beginning of verse 19. Truly, truly, for the 25th time in John's gospel, we see this truly, truly. And every time this formula comes out, there's going to be a great disclosure of a spiritual reality based upon the need of the hearer. And so it is in John 21 for the 25th and the final time we see this being born out in John's gospel. Truly, truly, speaking to Peter, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Oh, this is so very great here. Jesus Christ is giving good news. Without sight of this context, it would sound like there's no good news in this. You're getting a warrant about your death. He's telling you you're going to die. Where's the good news in that? Well, as Peter, in the debacle that he has made of his life in Christ, because he has always acted out of his nature. He has not fully outgrown that. Spiritually, he has not matured to where his old nature is well behind him. Jesus says, when you were young, three descriptive imperfect verbs. You used to gird, you used to walk wherever you used to want to go. Peter, that's how it's always been. But I'm telling you, when you grow old, and from this context, his growing old would be a matter of three decades. That's right, three decades. He was not going to mature quickly. It takes time to mature in Christ. But he would get there. And we would know that he would get there. Because true to Jesus' words... When he had grown old, when he had spiritually matured in a way that would bring glory to God, he would stretch out his hands now. He would not gird himself. He would now be girded. He would not go wherever he wanted. He would be led to a place where he did not want to go. 
But this time he would not fail the Lord. And he would, John tells us in verse 19, now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Oh, the good news is Peter realizes his last day will be his best day because he will bring unique glory to his Lord. When it's all said and done, he would not be found finally a failure. And that was the best of good news to Peter and these men. Then very quickly, thirdly, to fulfill our calling of our service to Jesus Christ, an unrivaled love, demonstrating a growth in spiritual maturity that glorifies God. And then thirdly, to follow Christ as the purpose in life. To follow Christ as the purpose in life. Look at verse 19. When Jesus had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now folks, this is not a, this is not a new calling. This is the same calling given to him and the others three years previous. Follow me. It's not a new calling. It just needs to be re-entered in restoration and recommitment. But now they are still going to be fishers of men, but they are going to tend and shepherd the men that they fish. And that's what's going to be the reality because of this event. But look at what it says. Follow me. And then Peter, still being himself, it's not 30 years forward at this point. Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Leave it to Simon Peter to immediately get off course when he's being recommissioned and restored back to ministry. Lord, what about John? How's it going to be for him? What's the tale of the tape for John? Would you notice the response that Jesus needingly gives to Peter? Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, notice this carefully, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, two things we have to quickly grab as a takeaway. Listen, Peter loved John. We could say from love, he was rightly concerned. But in this issue of following Jesus Christ, I mean, this is the focus, the purpose that just surrounds us. We can't even afford to be distracted with somebody else's fellowship. That's what Jesus Christ tells him. Why are you concerned about that? And it is so very vivid. Three Greek forms in the Greek text. Su, moi, Akaluthe, you, me, you follow. Man, that makes it very emphatic. Peter, don't you dare worry about anybody else. Don't you be concerned about anybody else. It is enough on your plate for you to follow me. That's the end of the line for you, Peter. That's all you need to know. And you are set to go from there. Well, 
We've got to come quickly to the end here. In the classic movie, Ben-Hur, the director, Cecil B. DeMille's, with his star actor, Charlton Heston, he needed him to learn to drive a chariot. He had no knowledge, of course, who does in driving a chariot. And so for two weeks every day, he learned to drive a chariot. And the director came to him and said, well, how's it going? And he said, well, after two weeks, I know I can drive the chariot, but I don't think I can drive it fast enough to win the race. The director, Cecil B. DeMille's, told Charlton Heston this. You drive the chariot. I'll direct the outcome of the race. My friend, that's what we need to take care of. We need to take care of our responsibility to follow Christ, and he will take care of the results of that. Well, for you guys that are looking for a conclusion, I've got it, but you ain't going to hear it. I wish you could. I'll have to leave you. You drive the chariot. The Lord will direct the outcome of our race. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you not for the mess that those men made of their life at that point in their ministry. But Father, we praise you and we thank you that in the mess that they made, you redeemed it. And that is such an encouragement and comfort to us and it equips us and it puts air under our wings Father, so that we can commit ourselves to that which is required of us, an unrivaled love for you, a spiritual growth in Christ that glorifies you, and to follow you as our purpose, our focus in all the days of our life. Father, may you be well pleased to glorify yourself and how that works out in the lives of each one of us. I pray, Lord, for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.